Welcome everyone. My name is Molly Rowan Leach and I'm your host and producer for the ongoing international webcast and telecouncil series free to everyone who's interested in being a part of it called Restorative Justice on the Rise. This series is made possible by the Peace Alliance and sponsorships and donations from private donors and participants like yourself. This archive is from May 9th, 2013 and features an incredible conversation that we had with Lorraine Stutzman Amstutz, who is the co-director of Mennonite Central Committee's Office on Justice and Peacebuilding. She's also guest faculty for the Summer Peacebuilding Institute at Eastern Mennonite University, and she provides consulting and training for agencies and communities seeking to implement programs of restorative justice. She's written numerous articles and co-authored The Little Book of Restorative Discipline for Schools, as well as written The Little Book of Victim-Offender Conferencing, Bringing Victims and Offenders Together in Dialogue. She has served on the International Victim-Offender Mediation Association Board. And we hope you'll enjoy this conversation that we had with Lorraine and join us in the future on Restorative Justice on the Rise. For more information about the series, go to dopeace.us, scroll over to the Restorative Justice menu tab, and you'll find archives from the two years that we've had conversations with pioneers from all over the world doing incredible work in this growing field, restorative justice. Thank you, and enjoy the archive with Lorraine Stutzman Amstutz. Good evening, everybody, and such a warm welcome to you all, wherever you're dialing, Skyping, or webcasting in from. This is Molly Rowan Leach, and I am your host for this free, ongoing telecouncil and webcast series, Restorative Justice on the Rise. This series um, is sponsored by the Peace Alliance and also made possible by your generous donations as participants. And on that note, tonight I'd just like to take a moment before introducing our very special guest, um, guest speaker tonight. I'm looking forward to this conversation very much. But I want to acknowledge and thank all of you for the work that you're doing in, this, in the field and beyond. And just um, make sure that everybody who is participating tonight also knows that there's a great amount of resources at the Do Peace website, which houses the Restorative Justice on the Rise archives, and also places the upcoming schedule, um, which in fact includes this month uh, a conversation with Mark Umbright. And we, we will probably be talking with Representative Pete Lee also this month because of the uh, just recent news as of this morning that a House bill has passed here in Colorado, um, the Restorative Justice Pilot Project. So that's great news here in Colorado. But just wanting to acknowledge that your, your, your participation here is really a key aspect of this ongoing series, and we really hope that you find it useful in your practice, in perhaps your getting acquainted with this growing field of restorative justice, which actually in many ways is inherent to, to us all as human beings. And also, you know, we can turn to indigenous and peripheral communities alike in our world and over history um, to see the presence um, in some form or another of restorative justice. So just encouraging you to please take advantage of this time. If you are um, interested in asking live questions, making comments, that's what we're here for um, tonight and every time we get together, Thursdays 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern. Um, asking live questions is as simple as touching one on your keypad, and I'll, I'll be queuing you tonight when those times will be, usually around halftime and towards the end of the call to open up with our guest speaker some conversation. And thank you to all of you who have submitted the great pre-submitted web questions. We have some great dialogue questions tonight already. 
lined up. So thank you for those. One other thing before we start tonight, I'd like to also just um, take a little bit of a survey. And we had a survey that um, we did for registration around your experience, um, what, you know, what your practical experience might be in the field. And I'd like to do that again tonight. Um, if, you, if you feel you might be what would be called new to the field, would you please press 1 on your keypad? And again, keeping in mind that we're, um, we're here together in you know, so many various forms, and I'm not trying to uh, make it seem like this is you know, maybe your first experience or, or whatnot, but that, that this, you know, relatively speaking, in one way or another, you're new to the field. Okay, great. Um, and then let's, let's, let's say you have maybe a mid-range experience. Press 2. Press 2 on your keypad. And this also includes the fact that oftentimes we have people who are directly affected by crime, whether as um, authors, receivers, victim offenders, community members, um, and that sort. So uh, press 2 on your keypad if you feel that you have kind of a mid-range um, in whatever way in this field of restorative justice. Wonderful. And then let's say you've been in this as an academic, a judge, um, you know, a grassroots organizer for say let's maybe go with 12 years or more or um, just are really familiar with, with the field and have been working within it. Press 3 on your keypad. And so with these kinds of surveys, it's really interesting because most of the people that come, there's, there's a very equal division of, um, of new and mid-range and then the furthering um, you know, higher experience in the field um, or maybe longer experience in the field, there's a little bit less of a percentage there. So we hope that, um, again, the Peace Alliance and myself and all of us are co-mentors in this experience of restorative justice on the rise, and we hope it provides you a place for resources, education, and, and really compelling dialogue. So again, welcome if you're new to this series. And without further ado, I'd like to just seg into our dialogue and conversation tonight with our very special guest, Lorraine Stutzman Amstutz. And I'd like to say a few words about Lorraine. It's hard to in a nutshell because she's really devoted so much of her life to restorative justice. And um, I'm, I'm actually uh, broadcasting tonight from the Restorative Justice Symposium here in Colorado Springs where one of her colleagues, Howard Zare, has just presented this morning uh, a very powerful presentation about shame and restorative justice. And uh, among many other things, Lorraine has uh, co-authored the Victim Offender Conferencing curriculum and paper for the Pennsylvania juvenile justice system with Howard Zare. That was in 1998. She also has co-authored a book called What Will Happen to Me? with Howard Zare, and she'll be talking a little bit more about that in a little, a little while here tonight. She's the author of The Little Book of Restorative Discipline for Schools, Teaching Responsibility, Creating Caring Climates, as well as The Little Book of Victim-Offender Conferencing, Bringing Victim and Offender Dialogue, excuse me, Bringing Victims and Offenders Together in Dialogue. She's also the co-director of the Office on Justice and Peacebuilding for Mennonite Central Committee and serves as a consultant and trainer for restorative justice programs, having a victim-offender mediation component, and has worked in the field of victim-offender mediation since 1984. She's also on the faculty uh, for the Summer Peacebuilding Institute at Eastern Mennonite University, where she also um, in 2002, received her bachelor's in social work. She's been awarded the Distinguished Service Award and holds an MSW from Marywood University. So tonight, it's a real honor to have you with us, Lorraine, and uh, welcome to Restorative Justice on the Rise. 
Thank you. Good to be with you. So tonight, I wondered if maybe we could start out, Lorraine, with a little bit about um, what what your path brought you, uh, how it brought you into the field of restorative justice, and and then um, we'll take off from there. Okay. Um, well, maybe just one correction where you said I was a 2002 graduate of Eastern Mennonite University. Um, I'm, I'm quite a bit older than that. <laughs> so I was actually an 81 graduate of Eastern Mennonite <laughs> University. So just thought I'd better put that correction right out there. Um, so when I graduated from Eastern Mennonite University with a social work degree, I actually spent um, about a year and a half um, doing my practicum and then sometime after working in juvenile probation. And so I talk about having spent uh, that time doing case histories, doing reports, doing recommendations to the court for what will happen, social histories for what will happen with juveniles when they committed a crime. And, um, and once I got my degree and finished those practicums uh, with juvenile probation, I then um, moved to Lancaster County where I was looking for a job and there were a group of us living together and I started working at Mennonite Central Committee which is where I met Howard because he was then directing the Office on Crime and Justice. And I remember as part of that work when I started working with him because of my interest in the juvenile justice system, um, just being fascinated by this idea of victim offender reconciliation programs, which is how they've uh, been known traditionally within the Mennonite community at least, um, and others too might know it as that even though we use different language often now for programs. Um, but as I was reading the information about that, one of the things that really uh, captured my attention was that idea of bringing victims into this dialogue as a stakeholder and what had happened in the crime. And I realized that in the year or so that I had spent in juvenile probation, that I had never once um, in doing the history uh, with the juvenile or talking about the crime or what should happen, I had never once talked to a victim. And so I thought that was just very telling. Um, about how our system operates, not that we didn't send a letter to the victim asking you know, what restitution was, but uh, assuming that was the only need that they had and assuming that was our only role in probation was to find that out uh, in terms of a monetary loss. So um, in that, I think, time, just recognizing that it was much bigger than what the system was and there was much more that could be happening, and so I actually moved uh, at that point um, out to Elkhart, Indiana, um, and started working um, there with the, um, then it was called it was called PAC, Prisoners and Community Together, and then changed to Center for Community uh, Justice. Um, and so I started working uh, at that organization, and that's where um, certainly uh, I got a lot of my experience um, doing training, doing cases, and was just totally captured by this idea of um, bringing people together to you know, build healthier communities when there's been, um, then we were mostly just talking about crime, not necessarily about harm. So uh, in, in other senses, and other ways that that can happen. So I continued in, in that role for several years, and I've said once I got into it, I never got back out. Um, I took breaks now and then and did some different things, but mostly I stayed working in the field, um, eventually moved. Well, I keep telling Howard, I just followed him wherever he moved, and um, kicked him out of, you know, jobs, and then I took over. Um, he, I worked with him when we, my family moved back to Akron, Pennsylvania, which is then where Howard was living, and he was, um, at that point, when he made the decision to move down to Eastern Mennonite University, then I became the director of the Office on Crime and Justice, um, which is now the Restorative Justice Office, actually, through Mennonite Central Committee. So that work, I think, for me over the years has certainly broadened. Um, beyond just victim offender work to also looking at other areas um, of crime and harm within our communities. So in my role at Mennonite Central Committee, I would also work with, um, with congregations, with churches um, in conflict. I also look at areas around um, sex abuse within congregations or organizations. Um, a lot of my focus has been with restorative discipline for schools, and I say that comes out of my own understandings of restorative justice and how we talk about building healthy community and thinking about um, the idea that we wait until someone is involved in the legal system um, before we talk about restorative justice. And I think we need to be talking about it much earlier. We need to be looking at it in terms of, you know, if those principles are something we talk about based in values, then we need to be incorporating them into other aspects or all aspects of our life. 
Um, so I think that includes schools, and I did. I I spent a year working as a guidance counselor in a school, and that it was really where it hit me that much of what how we model our discipline in schools is a lot like the legal system, and doesn't hasn't always worked out so well. So trying to think about how we we really do create caring climates for. Uh, all aspects of our life, including schools and our organizations. And so that's a lot of where my focus and, and kind of passion has been. Um, you also mentioned, and, and maybe we can talk a little bit more about that later, it doesn't have to be right now, but the, the project that Howard and I did together um, that eventually turned into the book, What Will Happen to Me, looking at um, the idea of who's impacted uh, not only by crime, but by incarceration, and how we take into consideration those people in our communities who are marginalized, particularly, you know, those who are incarcerated. And so, looking at kind of the innocent victims of that, which would be the, the children who, you know, have not done anything wrong, and yet they're experiencing the stigma that sometimes uh, goes along with that for them of being um, have a parent who is incarcerated, and so how do we care for those uh, mm -hmm. children as well? And so it, mm -hmm. that focuses on some resources for caregivers as well as thinking about what what is involved in that. Um, so that's been part of the work as well. You know, Lorraine, I just have to pause for a moment there to just say how moved I was. Uh, you know, I, I have quite a few of your books on my bookshelf and in our resource library that we have in our own community circle here in Colorado. And I hadn't seen that book um, that you co-authored with Howard. And of course, it features portraits that he's done, uh, photographs of these children. And he's done other portraiture books, including one, of course, that has just been recently published. Um, <clears throat> but I have to say, I had. I had tears in my eyes. Um, I, it's just so powerful to um, see the, you know, see it, see that book laid out in the framework that it's laid out. To hear the stories, some of them are just one line, even of these children who have been affected um, indirectly, but very directly by, um, you know, by crime and conflict. And um, many of the the participants on this series also know. I, I myself am a, an adult child of uh, my mother ha has been in prison for 15 years. And so those tears, I think, in some ways were, um, uh, you know, a sense of recognition of, of even as an adult child of someone who is incarcerated, there are implications um, from this current system that we've experienced, um, the punitive system and kind of the corners that we all have to go into, it seems like. And that's part of the reason why I do the work that I do in this field is, is hopefully to um, channel the, the um, experience that I've had personally into um, giving back and raising awareness in this form of uh, the great work that people like yourself do and so many of us on this call and on this series. Um, so on that note, Lorraine, uh, I, I was wondering if we could go into your, you know, specific to your work with youth. There's, like I said earlier, there's been some great pre-submitted questions, and there's a lot of people wondering, kind of general questions about how to set youth programs up in their communities, and um, also how to set them up in um, in relationship to the current system. So, do you want to choose one of those and maybe start? Um, kind of sharing what uh, you know is there you know is there a template that I mean I know you have obviously the this wonderful piece that you wrote with Howard in 1998 but mm -hmm. you know I think it happens I don't know that there's a template I think that it happens um, I, always, I, I, I say that especially when people are talking about schools, and, but, but probably also uh, for the legal system as well. But with each one, I think it's, it's so important to know what the needs of the community are. And, and so whether that's a school community, whether that's something uh, that you're looking at setting up, you know, whether it's a victim offender conferencing program at the community level, um, I certainly think um, in the curriculum we try and provide some questions to guide people to um, be able to think about what questions they might need to be asking before they would try and start up a program. But certainly um, it's finding out what the needs are, and, and it's finding that starting point you know, in schools it may be very different depending on whether it's, um, 
you know, it's the principal who's initiating it, whether it's a, a group of teachers who's initiating it. So, so much depends on what's already going on in the school because often there's a lot of really good things already happening, and so how you tap into that as well. Um, but again, who's asking for it and, you know, where, where is, what, what is the need uh, that it's based on I think is really important. And so once there, if there was a specific question around that, I'd be happy to, you know, to answer that or talk about that a little bit more. But the same within the community. It's, um, you know, we often talk about finding, if it's within the legal system, finding a champion uh, that you can work with. Um, you know, sometimes it, just to say, well, we have this really good program and so we just want to implement it. Um, it it's, it's again knowing that there's someone from within the system or, or even if it's a nonprofit that says we want, um, they've asked me to come in and do a training because we, a lot of programs are volunteers from within the community who actually do the dialogues. And, you know, and I often ask, but before coming in to do a training, um, needing to know where are those referrals coming from within your community, who's asking for it, and how is that going to be implemented. And I think that's really, that, that's just such a key piece besides having a group of people that you know are really interested. Um, it's also finding out who within the system of where those referrals might be coming from is also on board and how does that start to happen. So those are just some very, I think, preliminary beginning stages um, as people are coming together talking about what the needs might be within their community. Uh-huh. How imperative is it to have, like, say, uh, a trained facilitator, um, you know, perhaps a liaison with the DA's office, um, and kind of a web of connections um, with all the different branches of you know what who who becomes involved once crime and conflict occur. How imperative is that before I like to have those relationships built up for a community, you know, a small rural community, for example, to start restorative justice either in their community or in their local smaller school, perhaps. Well, I I think it's just like um, you know when we talk about restorative justice overall and kind of the framework and the values and the principles, you know, I think it's based on relationships. And so I think those relationships have to start at that level um, with people who sometimes don't even necessarily see themselves on the same side. But I think if we frame it in a way um, and talk about it in terms of how we build healthy community, then I think everyone, that's something that everyone I think can understand and everyone wants. Um, it may people may have different ideas about how we get there, but I think that's part of what groups can can do together within community is talk about how we get there. What are where are different people coming from? Um, I think sometimes we used to say, well, if someone wasn't on board with it, let's just leave them out. Um, where I think over the last you know. 10, 15, 20 years, we've done so much more talking about, no, then we just keep talking um, because we want to engage everyone who are stakeholders within the community to be involved in this, and we don't want people to feel left out. Not that they will necessarily agree, but I think if we, you know, as practitioners, don't model the values that we talk about and what we talk about when we bring people together in dialogue, then I think uh, we're being a bit hypocritical when we say, well, we just don't want to work with that person because they may not, they don't believe what we're doing or they're not on board. Um, I think it's continuing those conversations so that we can talk about what it would be like to have um, build something, whatever that program looks like within our community, but really basing it on the values that we're, um, we're talking to people about and saying that are really important to us. Uh, so I think we really do need to practice it. It seems also in 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 the there's a lot of interest in restorative justice, um, and that you know communities um, there's no like scarcity of conflict, whether it's within ourselves, whether it's um, you know with our our neighbors, our community members, and would you say that even you know with communities that haven't practiced this before together that, that um, a good place to start might even be in our own lives and with each other, uh, with the things that are at hand? Oh, I think it'd be a great place to start. I also think it's the hardest <laughs> place to start. <laughs> um, right. I, I remember joking with Howard at one point where he talked about having a little book of restorative parenting as one of the little book series and asking if I had interest in that. And I remember just laughing at him saying, that will, <laughs> you know, that will never happen. I am, 
you know, I'm not opening that book um, and that chapter. And I remember, you know, my son, when I, I, I was talking to him about it, and he was in college, and he said, well, you know, Mom, do you feel that bad about your parenting that you don't think you could write something like that? Uh, which I thought was also very interesting. But um, I, I think certainly over the years, I think people are taking the values and principles much more seriously up earlier on in their lives, and I, and I love seeing that. I think for for me, it took a long time to make that connection from, oh, it's not just the work that I do, it's how I should be living my life. Um, and I certainly credit um, a lot of that learning for me is from a lot of my indigenous colleagues who say, you know, we don't really have a word for restorative justice because it is a way of life. And I think it mm. took me, I, I'm not sure why it took me that so long for it to sink in for me, but but absolutely, um, I think it's about how how we live our own lives and how we incorporate those values and principles into all that we do and recognizing that. And so I think that helps when I can keep that in mind, um, which again, um, you know, it's that saying that, but you know, I don't like to take my work home with me. It's all, you know, I love other people's conflict and I love getting in the middle of all of this, but when it's my own, it, it looks very different. Um, so that emotional attachment makes it really difficult, I think, to sometimes really take, uh, live that in the way that we want to. But I think it's so, um, it's so critical, and I think it, that will also determine how we go about doing the work and, and who we include in it and how we bring everyone on board if we really, you know, I keep using that language of building healthy communities, and I think, it, you know, it does start with ourselves. Mm-hmm. I, I'd like to, to loop back around and do some ground-level conversation here in a moment, but I, I want to bring up what seems to be, what appears to be one of the interesting kind of edgier conversations happening in the general collective here, at least in the so-called Western part of the world. And that's um, perhaps elicited by some of the, the media attention that have, has been around um, in the past year particular perhaps to the um, Sujata, you know, our wonderful colleague Sujata Baliga and her um, working with uh, the case in Florida that, that got a lot of press recently in the New York Times Magazine and on uh, the Today Show, I believe, and otherwise. And um, what I'm getting at is the, is it necessary, is it, not is it necessary, but what, why is there a tendency um, for people to assume that restorative justice perhaps is a synonym with forgiveness? And could you comment on that and maybe talk a little bit about um, the specifics of, of why that tendency might be and what you, know, what you see the, the key elements of restorative justice really being? Well, I, you know, that synonym, restorative justice and, and forgiveness, I think part of it comes from the early language, um, particularly from those of us, um, you know, uh, involved in it within the Mennonite community, which was where a lot of the programs kind of started within this Western model that we know. We, taught, we know that the roots are, are so much broader and so much um, longer than what it's been uh, within our, this Western model that we talk about. Um, but that idea, at least when, so when I would have started in the, in the 80s, and I mentioned that we were not really at that time talking about restorative justice, we were talking specifically about victim offender reconciliation programs. And that's a model that we were training in. And that certainly for many of us came out of, um, of our own faith. And that, that idea, um, I think for me, certainly a reconciliation was not necessarily that people would be leaving those dialogues, you know, singing Kumbaya and have their arms around each other, but it was providing an opportunity for what we talked about in terms of right relationships. But I think as we used that language within that faith context, that that idea of, um, you know, if we're talking about reconciliation, then we're all automatically in people's minds making that connection to forgiveness. And, and I don't necessarily equate those two, and I think a lot of people don't, um, but it means it's providing an opportunity for that relationship to be as right as possible. Does it, I don't make that assumption then when people come together that there has to be forgiveness for it to be, um, uh, for it to be successful. And I think that's where we need to mm. let go of some of that and say, you know, we provide 
you know, we provide opportunities, and, and if forgiveness happens, then it happens. But, you know, just like we don't make assumptions, um, you know, I, I talk about it's not a settlement-driven model when we talk about bringing people together. I don't go in with the idea that there is something certain that has to come out of it, even even what restitution might look like if there's monetary restitution to be paid. We may have ideas from the police report about what that restitution is, but I don't go into it assuming that's what it's going to be. It, it's, it's not my process. It's theirs. And so people, we need to, um, you know, as, as we facilitate those, we let people go where they need to go um, in, in those terms. And so I think that's, you know, forgiveness is all wrapped up, I think, with that when we talk about yeah, reconciliation and if it's a right relationship, then it has to be about forgiveness. I think all of it is a process, and, and that's how I talk about forgiveness, that, um, you know, for, for healthy transformation for either party, you know, sometimes I think we, we deny that to participants if we just say, if we move quickly to, well, this is a process where they'll go in and they'll just forgive. I think we... Um, you know, we try and bypass a lot of the work that needs to be done when we go in with that assumption. So, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, but I think mm-hmm. those are the stories we like to hear, though, right? You know, that, that mm-hmm. oh, they, they forgave. Um, you know, I, again, I don't use that word generally unless those who I'm working with uh, use that language. But it's not something mm-hmm. when when I go into uh, or when I'm doing preparation, I... I that's not language that I use unless, again, they they choose that and they use it. Mm-hmm. It just seems that, um, also that the, in using, we, we, we need to be careful about the language that we use in, um, you know, in, in general around this field. And I wonder um, if by, you know, some of these media, attempts at publicizing some of these different cases that have happened to have forgiveness as a part of it, that it might, you know, scare some of the victims um, and make them feel disempowered that that, you know, oh, I don't want, you know, I'm not ready to forgive. And so I'm just kind of exploring that edge with you and all of us here of how can we make sure that victims, um, you know, have a sense that, that they're not being forced into any kind of process that's a means to an end, mm-hmm. but that, you know, they, they, they are, you know, the, at the heart of this and that they have, that they have the power. How, how can we retain that? Well, I think it's something that we, we have to continually talk about. I mean, I think it is um, it's an incredible burden that, we're, that we would be placing on victims if, we, if that's the assumption that they have or feel like to enter into a restorative justice process that they have to be willing to forgive. I mean, I think we, we do a disservice to, I think, all that we talk about with restorative justice if that's what we, if that's what people are assuming about it. And so I think we just have to continue, um, we continue having discussions like this so that people don't feel like that's, you know, an obligation on their part or that they're not, um, you know, I don't want to say the right kind of victim because they're not there. I mean, that's just that that's so totally, you know, wrong in my mind to make anyone feel that they have mm-hmm. to be in a certain place before they could even enter in, you know, to conversations about what this could look like if they want to engage in a restorative justice process. So I would hope we continue to just somehow get that message out. And, and certainly when, when I do trainings, um, you know, I talk about that. And I but I still know that language is out there, and I still know people uh, do that equating, but I think the more we can kind of dispel that, and again, we're not saying it's, mm-hmm. it, it's, it can't be, and it certainly can, and obviously, like you said, that's what, the, that's what we see when we, um, when we show those dialogues or the media talks about it because that's the most kind of, the, you know, somehow gets us, you know, in our hearts. Um, but not to not to feel like that's where people have to be, and I think we it, it's the same for you know those who have harmed to feel that um, like I never want I would never want anyone to come into that and feel like it wasn't successful for them if they didn't get that forgiveness or that's their job is to just come in and ask for forgiveness because I think then again we're missing a lot of the work and the, the transformative work that can happen in people's lives if we just jump to that kind of end result um, rather mm-hmm. than looking at all the work that needs to happen in between. So I would hope that uh, we don't 
you know, it, we, we, we dispel that myth that forgiveness is an event. You know, it, it's a process, mm-hmm. just like um, anywhere else on the journey and, and how people incorporate this, what has happened to them into the, you know, the narrative of their lives. And so forgiveness may or may not be there or, or will come later at some point, um, but it's not prescribed. Mm-hmm. I'd just like to take a a brief pause here to welcome you if you're arriving just now. Uh, We're having the honor of a a great conversation here with Lorraine Stutzman Amstutz, who is the author, among other things, of the little book of restorative discipline for schools, teaching responsibility, creating caring climates. Um, And she's also uh, the author of, uh, co-author with Howard Zare of What Will Happen to Me?, and um, she, you know, there's so many things that you've done, and, and the um, Summer Peace Building Institute is something that I think is important to, to just mention again really quick here with Eastern Mennonite University. Um, that's a, a program that hosts students and co-mentors from all over the world. And Lorraine, um, one of the questions that was pre-submitted tonight was, about trainings upcoming with you and or related to your work that you might recommend. So let's go into this next segment here with the assumption, first of all, that please press 1 on your keypad if you'd like to, to join the live conversation here tonight. Um, at any time now between um, this moment and the closing of our session tonight, pressing 1 on your telephone keypad if you have a question or a comment to make. And then let's talk a little bit about um, the, you know, the, the youth work that you're doing um, on a little bit more of a ground level. Um, one of the questions that, that came up was about um, peer-led processes um, or youth processes. Are, are you doing work where, where some, of the, um, some of the youth are, are actually a part of the facilitation process or guiding it? Yes, there are some youth who are um, who are doing the facilitation. There's there's schools that are doing training um, and using that peer mediation model. Um, I know that there's uh, um, well, I I have some feelings about the peer mediation model in itself and how how it's been set up just from some of my experience. Um, but there are there are schools that are using students as, as facilitators, and, and often it just it depends on the level of cases. It depends whether whether this is in elementary school or whether it's in high school. So knowing um, it, it sometimes is co-facilitated with an adult and a student. So, but certainly it's a, it's a useful model. I think if nothing else, even if it, depending on what the cases are, whether it's appropriate for students to be leading it or or not. But there's so many things that they can do, even if it's not individual cases. Um, they're leading circles, you know, in the classroom or doing some after-school work leading circles within their schools or, um, you know, just having conversation uh, circles around topics that are important to them. And, and a lot of those are very much student-led, which I think is, is really important. Um, and so I think um, being able to teach students kind of the just like anyone within our communities when we do a training, whether or not they actually do cases, they're learning um, about, you know, as we talk about restorative justice, um, at the, the framework and, and what are approaches that we can use that may be different than what we've traditionally been taught about how we, um, how we relate to someone who's harmed us or when something has happened, you know, how we enter into some kind of conversation about that. So I think even just having the training is important um, whether they're actually doing those in the schools or not, they're at least having that training and, and I think providing that transformation within our communities, you know, starting at that level. I, in, the, in the little book of restorative discipline for schools, I tell the, I, I use the story um, of, of being, um, doing a training and where the students, we were called in and asked to um, do a circle with these students and there were, were six girls and Basically, they needed an adult to be present with them to kind of lead that process, but they knew exactly what they were doing um, and came in and, um, you know, had their own talking piece, and an hour and two boxes of tissues later, you know, they had they had talked out what they needed to. And I remember um, asking these students who were in sixth 
grade, one of the students who had asked for the circle, you know, I said, how did you know to do this? And she says, oh, we, we do this all the time. Like next week it may be a different issue and we'll come back in, but we know this is a place where we can come and talk about it. And I said, but how did you know to ask for it? And she said, oh, we learned this in third grade, and so we've been doing it since then. I think that's marvelous. You know, what a great mm. thing to be saying, this is what we've learned, you know, from elementary school. This is a different way we've learned so that we're not fighting in the hallway. We're not taking it out, you know, in the McDonald's parking lot after school. We're learning that this is a place where we can sit together and the six of us have this conversation when there's been a conflict, whatever that conflict is. So I think, um, you know, that's a way, I think, of looking at discipline um, and allowing for that in a way that doesn't just say, well, if you have that fight, you know, that's an automatic three-day suspension or that's an automatic detention because you can't, you know, use that language in the school. This is a way of saying, but what's down underneath of that? What about your relationship? Let's talk about what that that means and how it's going to look different going forward. Mm. What is required um, to shift from, uh, you know, like a school administrator might just really believe in the the punitive form, um, you know, the the three strikes you're out, the um, zero tolerance, which has landed a hundred over a hundred thousand kids here in Colorado into the the system since the Columbine shooting. So what what is required for us to um, help a, each other shift away from a, that punitive? worldview, so to speak, um, systemic view, and move much more towards, you know, teaching responsibility and creating these caring climates. What, what does it take? Well, you know, if I had the answer to that, Molly, wouldn't I? You know, <laughs> really going other places. Um, you know, I think part of what it takes, it, it, I mean, I think it takes um, – just acknowledging that what we're doing, and I think you can look at the research and it shows just that what we're doing isn't necessarily, it's not working. You know, maybe it works for some students um, when we just go that purely punitive model, but I think when we don't look at the underneath of relationships, you know, one of the things I say to schools is, you know, you know, what I would hope when my kids went through school is it's not just about teaching them the basics. You know, they're spending a lot of time together. Schools are communities. It is where mm-hmm, community right. building happens. And so I want our kids to be in healthy environments. And if it's a place where you just are trying to keep them under control and maintained, um, you know, then I think that's, that is a sad commentary. So how are they involved in the process of learning as well um, and, and seen in, in so many ways as co-learners? And so I think it's just that we need to continue to have that conversation, and I think people need to continually, um, you know, be challenging it. And, and I think there are so many schools who, who want to do that, who are doing it. I don't mean to say that they're all, you know, they're not doing really wonderful things that they because they are, and I think they have one of the, hardest jobs that there is um, mm-hmm. trying to do that within the schools. And so I really, you know, honor all the work that they're doing. And so I think it's finding ways that also the community can be involved, that we don't expect just schools to do that on their own, to say, you know, you need to make that shift and we don't care how you do it, just do it. Um, that's where mm-hmm. I think community members also, that that we need to be forming partnerships uh, with schools mm-hmm. to say that, you know, if there are ways that we can be involved and here's how we can do it and what, you know, what do we provide as community? We can't just send our, you know, it's kind of the same thing when we send, you know, when kids are in the, the legal system, you know, it's like that's someone else's problem and we don't have to deal with that. Sometimes I think we have that mentality once we send them off to school as well. Um, so how do we, mm. I think we need to provide support. I think it needs to be, you know, I talk about a whole school approach. I think it's where, um, you know, where, where parents need to be involved, where community members need to be involved in, in having a say in what this could look like as well and not just expecting it just to turn around on a dime. I think it, it, it takes time. Um, mm-hmm. But talking about what does it mean to build a healthy community within our schools as well, I think is really an important conversation, you know, that we mm-hmm. need to have. Would that start with the circle process? Like let's just say a school that has never done this before but who's really interested um, and maybe say the new director is um, really fired up with some of the training that they've done um, and would like to, to bring it in. And there's some parents in the community that are interested in it as well. Would it, would it possibly 
start with a circle process, or what, what would it start with? And then let's you know, go to a live question. Um, I think it could start um, any number of ways. And again, sometimes when I go into a school, that's the first thing I ask is, what are you interested in starting? Where, where, where are some of the challenges that right. you have a particular need and what you would like to see? And so sometimes they talk about repeat suspensions. You know, so when a student, you know, and so one of the things um, that I've asked is, so when a student comes back into the school from being suspended, because that's your policy and you're going to use that for now, um, what does that look like when they come back? So they've are, they're already carrying this often a stigma of having been suspended. So how do we reintegrate them back into that? you know, kind of community, because that's what we want to, I think, model, how we, how we bring someone back, how we, how we even send someone out from within our community. Basically, you know, we, we know that everyone knows, but we don't want to talk about it, and we don't, we don't bring them even back in healthy ways. Um, or depending on the school, it depends whether it's elementary, whether it's middle school or high school. In elementary, they are doing a lot with circles, and, and not just circles when something um, something goes wrong, but, but circles of just to say, you know, this week, you know, our topic is talking about respect. Uh, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. And to sit in a circle to even talk about that. Um, so it's not, so it's, it's helping them to know that we want to have conversation, healthy conversations, not just when something goes wrong. So I think it can right. happen. Um, a lot of schools are interested in doing it around truancy, so talking about truancy mediation. So who do we bring together to talk about what, that when there's, when there's a, a truancy problem? What else is going on in the home? How, you know, how do we do follow-through? And, and that's a matter of sitting together and having that conversation with all those who need to be involved. It's not just a disciplinary issue. Mm, um, so mm -hmm. I think it can start you know, at so many different places. It depends on, on what the needs are. Um, and mm -hmm. what gifts people have that want to, you know, that are coming into it, and what they bring. I love, I love the point that you make there of of uh, making a circle process regular and not associated necessarily with conflict, um, but as a, a, a kind of like a base point to check in to um, converse about certain issues and to make it sort of a, a neutral space. Um, for there to also be a reliance, uh, you know, and a, a closer knit community when conflict does occur. That's really a great point to make, and it certainly seems that that our youth and you know our adults as uh, alike um, could put, could benefit from that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I'd like to to go ahead and open up the the live questions here and comments. And remember, if you'd like to to make a comment or ask a question tonight. Join in the dialogue by pressing one on your keypad. Uh, I'd, I'd like to invite you, Mark, you're live. Welcome. Thank you. And thank you, Lorraine, for all the work you're doing. Thank you. I'm in Fort Collins, Colorado, just up the road from Colorado Springs. Sorry I've missed the um, conference this year. I was there last year. It was great. Um, I like your talk about using circles um, effectively, my wife has been, this year, has gone into two elementary schools here in Fort Collins and taught essentially all the teachers a circle process where the kids sit down once a week and are able to express appreciation for one another, grievances, and heartfelt ap apologies. And it's totally changed the, um, the community atmosphere in the school. Um, totally. One of the schools, McGraw Elementary, has taken this into um, just the way that they're going to operate. Um, my wife has a website, peacecircles.com, where she explains this process. Um, I've been involved in restorative justice up here for seven years and working um, with the conferencing process as a diversion from the courts. And it works really well um, in reducing recidivism, but having the kids learn these skills of conflict resolution as part of their own vocabulary um, will be something they'll able, be able to carry on for the rest of their lives. Mm -hmm. So again, so again, thank, thank you, Mark. For the, the work. Sure. 
Thank you so much, Mark. Any comments, uh-huh. Lorraine, further, or shall we take another question? Well, just to comment? say that, that, I mean, I think he, his point and, and knowing that teachers are doing that, I think it is amazing, you know. Uh, and, and it is. When we sit and, and have conversations with one an, another and know, uh, again, it's about building relationships. And, and so I think that's what's really important because then if we, if we can build those healthy relationships when things are going well, then I think when things don't go well, we have something to build on. Um, rather than we put we we do that othering of people so often that if we don't know them well then we understand um, or we think we do why they might do harmful things but if we if we know something about them because we've already started developing positive relationships then I think we look at that very differently how we're going to relate to them to have a conversation when something is said that's hurtful or when there's been a harm done so I, I just I think building those healthy relationships and those these kind of processes is all part of what we're talking about um, in terms of restorative justice. Mm. I'd like to welcome Kamisha. You're live. Welcome. Thank you. It's actually my daughter. Hi, Lorraine. It's Kamisha Fatima in Oakland, California. Hi, Kamisha. Nice to hear your voice. <laughs> So I'm sitting in the car. We're on Bluetooth. I hope you guys can hear me. My nine-year-old daughter, Sakina, would like to ask a question. She's been involved in many circles and bullying situations over a long period of time and has extensive um, experience in RJ and actually might be presenting at the International Restorative Justice Conference coming up in Ohio. Awesome. Hi. I wanted to um, ask, uh, hi, I wanted to ask if, what, sh- what should we do if you want to get something off of your back from another person? Like, you have a, you have a fight with, or a bullying episode with a person, but they don't want to talk about it, and they don't want to have a circle, or do anything about it, but you want to get this off off of your shoulders. What what should you do? I think that's an excellent question. So, uh, because one of the things, obviously, that we always say is that the this is voluntary. That people we don't want to force anyone into these conversations um, if they if they can't or don't want to. But but certainly, it sounds like. Yeah, it's important for you to be able to talk about it. And that's where I think, um, you know, sometimes there's just, um, if, there's a, if there's a group, so if there's another group of students that you know um, have also experienced something like this, or even one other student, that you have a place where you know that you can go, and, and that may be to an adult, whether it's the guidance counselor office, or whether there's a restorative justice coordinator, so that you know that you still have a place because You've been obviously, you know, harmed by that, and and whether or not that other person is ready, um, shouldn't mean that you can't have a place to go and talk about it. So I think that's an excellent point. Not to assume that we're always going to bring people together because that can't always happen for for a lot of reasons. But we still need to provide a place for those who have experienced that or, or have been hurt by it to have a place to go. So it's an excellent question. Thank you. Thank you. What an what a wonderful question, and and actually that elicits a question for me as well. Um, Lorraine, do is it appropriate for for us when that kind of situation occurs to enact perhaps like a surrogate process where we can play act, like say you have a friend who. Um, you know, you feel safe with, and they could play a role um, that when the actual, you know, person who caused you harm or or vice versa mm-hmm. isn't able or willing to be a part of, of a process. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, and again, it, it's, you know, and it, it's partly, I think, um, what happens with discipline processes and some of the, I think, um, what I saw early on is that we tend to focus on the person who did the harm. And it's like, let's remove them from the situation. Let's let's not have them talk to anyone or let's talk to them and tell them what they did wrong and, and 
how awful they are because of it. But the person who's who's been harmed doesn't have that opportunity often. It's like, well, as long as you're okay, um, then then we're all good. We'll go take care of this person. Um, so yeah. Asking that person through a surrogate or having some process where they get to sit and say, well, what was this like for you, and, and what do you want to talk about, and how, you know, what's going to happen if that happens again? You know, all of those things are so important, and I think we tend to, to not you know, focus on, you know, it's just like when we talk about within the legal system, we, you know, there's a reason I think it, um, people talk about it being the, um, the criminal justice system because it, it hasn't been a system, you know, for victims. And because that's where all the focus has been is around the offender. And I think it's it, the same thing with schools when the focus is on, well, we'll have that person, we'll, we'll go through a discipline procedure that may or may not involve the person who's been harmed in any way. So I think it really is critical. And so whether that's with a surrogate, whether it's with another adult, whether it's with a friend, it needs to happen. So I think it was really an excellent point. Mm. And it was very special. I love having youth as a part of the conversation. Um, it's yeah. just so important. <laughs> oh, yeah. um, so thank you again for that question, dear. And um, on that note, um, could you share a little bit, again, about trainings that might be upcoming that you would suggest for people? And also, there was another question uh, along those lines for connecting in people's various areas. You know, there's callers from all across the United States and beyond. So one of the ways that people can get involved sometimes is simply to reach out to, you know, the next county over or the next city over where there's, there's something really happening. So could you take a moment to, to talk about trainings and then maybe some programs that you would recommend people check out? Um, in terms of training, um, I, you know, I, you've already With mentioned... With you or otherwise? Yeah, and one of the things that you already mentioned was the Summer Peace Building Institute at uh, Eastern Mennonite University, which is a week-long course that you can either take for credit or audit, which you know is certainly one, uh, you know, something that I encourage people to check out. Um, you know, the the problem I, I don't always know. Uh, I'm, I'm I'm invited often to go and do trainings. I don't necessarily host them. Um, because it's easier for people to bring me into a community or bring anyone who does training, I think, into a community. And so I think we're not doing as many. Um, we used to do a lot more of that, the Victim Offender Mediation Association Annual Conference. But obviously there's the one that, that, that haven't been held over the last number of years, but there's the Restorative Justice Conference that's going to be held um, in Toledo, Ohio um, in June. And there are trainings and workshops that are happening there that I think would be really helpful if people are interested in just learning more about so many. You know, the nice thing about conferences is you can hear about so many different aspects of the work um, all in one place. So I would really encourage um, people to, to look at that. Um, a lot more states are holding conferences. I know after the Toledo conferences, I'm going to Portland, Oregon for the conference they're having there. So that's what I think I would encourage people just to check out you know, statewide organizations that are doing restorative justice. I think that's really important. Um, you know, I know there are websites um, on different, that different states have in terms of what's going on with restorative justice that I think would be really important to find out what's going on locally or regionally um, because it's harder. You know, we, we don't have, I think, as strong a network as maybe we used to, even within restorative justice. There are, you know, I might know certain things about what's going on, but someone else will know things about what's going on in another part of the country. So I think, um, you know, I think it's trying to stay connected by looking on websites and, and just sending emails and asking. I'm always happy to have people send me emails and ask, you know, if I have ideas about what's going on um, in particular places. So. Um, sometimes it feels a little more hit or miss than people um, would like. It would be nice if it was all concentrated in one area, but I don't think we really have that right mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It seems like uh, one of the, the, the conversations and, and actions that are collectively happening uh, are people are really mobilizing and finding each other. And, um, you know, there's quite a few websites, like you're saying, that um, are beginning to show directories. Like here in Colorado, um, here at the conference today, 
uh, we had a discussion around um, the updates that give a, a, like a map where you can just click on all the different programs in each county here in Colorado. And that seems to be a growing um, right. occurrence here nationwide. I want to I wanna just point out too for, for people who may not know um, how to find the Victim Offender Conferencing in Pennsylvania's Juvenile Justice System document. It is up online at um, the Mennonite um, at the MCC.org website, and um, I just want to point that out that that's a very valuable resource there online, as well as, of course, the website for the Mennonite Central Committee is MCC.org. Once again, MCC.org. And for the Summer Peace Building Institute, that's over at the Eastern Mennonite University website, which is EMU. Dot edu and then backslash CJP. Um, so those are some great programs to check out and, and highly encourage looking at the websites just mentioned, as well as of course this beautiful array of scholarly and dedicated work that you've you've brought to the world through these books. Um, and could you just say a few words, Lorraine, about this series, the Little Books series? Right. There are a number uh, through good books. Um, there are. I I should know this off the top of my head. How many there are? I I, I don't know if there are a dozen yet of the little books of um, justice and peace building. So you can uh, all of them are available on um, on Amazon. But you could also go to the um, good books. It's it's goodbooks.com website and and see all of the ones that are listed there and so they're they're just very um, you know accessible that come you know that talk about the key concepts and practices you know within restorative justice that um, but but very specific like the victim offender conferencing one would always obviously be very different than the restorative discipline for schools so I think they're just a really helpful resource and they're inexpensive and they're not very you know they're not very thick. Um, so I think they're pretty easy to read. Mm -hmm. They're a wonderful resource to have for those just getting acquainted with restorative justice and, and these concepts and to have on hand for people, like you're saying, brief um, outlines of the key concepts and very useful. It's again the Little Book series, the Little Book of Restorative Justice, Restorative Discipline for Schools, and so on and so forth. And I do think you're right. It's at least a dozen at this point of those uh, little little books. And um, finally tonight, Lorraine, um, again about the What Will Happen to Me book and uh, a little bit about the traveling exhibit that is, um, you know, for people that, that are interested in, in bringing it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, be, before we actually did the book, What Will Happen to Me, when uh, when Howard and I were doing this as a project, it was just as an exhibit. And so um, there are, you know, 12 different panels that um, sit up on tables um, that show, they're, so they're large pictures that have been mounted of, of the kids that we interviewed and then quotes from them underneath. And so that exhibit is available through my office. Um, I think we, we char I think there's like a $50 rental fee so we can ship it anywhere, you know, in the country. And so if there's a conference or if there's, you know, some seminar or something that you want to have it hosted, colleges often use it, then um, it, it's available. And again, you can find that on the website, the, the MCC.org. Um, there's um, under the Restorative Justice Office, there is, uh, I think, something specific that just says exhibits that you can see. We have a number of different ones, actually. This is just one of them. Mm, wonderful. Well, our time is, is at a close this evening, and it's just been a great honor. And, of course, always so much to cover within just a short hour. Really grateful for everyone's participation tonight and for the great pre-submitted questions as well. And uh, on behalf of the Peace Alliance, we just want to thank you again for your donations that help keep this series free. It's ongoing. And it will even continue through this summer as a portion of one of the important tracks during the Summer of Peace. And then, of course, we'll, we'll take up again um, through the fall and into the next year. And I'm always interested in hearing from you 
about speaker suggestions and topics you'd like to cover on this free series. Um, we also are an international webcast now, hoping to reach as many people in the world that are interested in joining in the conversation. Please access all the archives. We have a huge and growing array of archives, dialogues with people from all over the world, including the one tonight, of course, will be posted there. And that's at dopeace.us. There's a menu. Once you mouse over restorative justice, you'll see archive listings and upcoming guest schedule, including um, this month we'll be talking with Mark Umbright and others, and looking forward to seeing you in the future. So again, Lorraine, it's been a great pleasure. I just so honor your work in the field, and um, thank you for joining us tonight on Restorative well, Justice so on the Rise. Thank you so much for inviting me. It was, it was great to be with you, so thanks. Well, thank you, and good night, everyone. Okay. We'll good see night. you again in the near future.